Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Log <laughs> Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast. If they make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you should sign up for our RSS feed, either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio, or uh, any of your podcast directories have a subscribe button. Just click subscribe, and that will get you notified of each episode as it comes up. Today's show is going to be an interview with Catherine Joyce, the author of the, I guess we could call it a new book, a semi-new book, The Child Catchers. I'm looking forward to it. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education, resources, and support for both adoption and infertility. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical, and Faring has a new heartbeat program um, that helps uh, uh, cancer patients uh, who have lost their uh, fertility via treatment. Um, Oftentimes that is a result of cancer treatment, um, and it is possible for eligible patients to get uh, medication for free uh, through through the Faring's Heartbeat Program. You can get more information about this program at heartbeatprogram.com. Or, of course, you could talk to either your reproductive endocrinologist or your uh, oncologist to get information as well. They should know about it. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent one you might like was yesterday's blog, which really isn't related exclusively to adoption or infertility, but I talk about the overwhelming, or at least overwhelming to me, temptation to glorify busy or to stay very busy because it feeds my, my own ego. Um, please join us and share your own thoughts. Let me know that I am not alone. Uh, and you can uh, check us out at creatingafamily.org slash blog. As I said, usually the topics are more uh, related to either adoption or infertility. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from all of our gold sponsors, including Children's Connection, they are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation slash adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the U.S. We also have Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in 49 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. Creating Family, as you just heard, is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. So you've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors. So if you're looking for an adoption agency or an attorney or an infertility doctor or therapist or attorney, 
or a donor or surrogacy agency, please make your first stop the Creating a Family database on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, humanitarian aid, a whole host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today on the Creating a Family show, I will be interviewing Catherine Joyce. She is the author of The Child Catchers, Rescue, Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption. She is also the author of a previous book, Quiverful, Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement. She is a journalist in New York City, and has uh, her work has appeared in The Nation, Mother Jones, The Atlantic, Harvard, and this is a new one, Harvard Divinity Bulletin, and Slate. Welcome, Catherine, to Creating a Family. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Don. Well, um, the Child Catcher book is primarily a critique or a criticism of the uh, evangelical orphan care movement. Why did you name it the Child Catcher? Well, um, I was thinking about titles for for a long time. I think anybody who's written a a book realizes that this is kind of one of the the most painful processes um, and not one that's entirely in the control of the author. But I, um, I'm sorry. He said, "Yep, that's true." Yeah, exactly. Um, But I, I wanted to to have a title that somehow spoke to. Uh, you know, what had emerged very clearly to me and what I had been told, you know, by many experts who have also worked on this topic are the two main kind of ever-competing narratives about adoption, that it is purely rescue or that it is purely kidnapping or trafficking. Um, I think as, you know, most people who look closely at this uh, will come to see, you know, it's it's never uh, only one. It's never only one side. It's you know, each case is is very different, um, but I wanted uh, a title that could kind of evoke both of those things. So the idea of catching a child uh, that's falling, um, catching a child as in that sort of rescue, and then also the more nefarious catching a child as in, you know, recruiting a child or kidnapping a child uh, for for a wrongful adoption when those happen. So I felt ultimately that that this title could contain both of those meanings. I would also say, though, that that there's certainly another narrative which I think some might actually, and myself would be included, would think the predominant narrative, and that is parents wanting to be parents, Um, parents adopting because they want to parent a child and want to have a lifetime commitment to that child. But uh, we'll get into that further. Um, The majority of your book, The Child Catchers, uh, was focused on the influence of the orphan care movement on international adoption. So let's start there. And then later in the show, we'll move to domestic adoption, both private and foster care. So we'll we'll move to that later. But let's start with international. Um, You say that there's the orphan crisis is a myth. Why Why do you say that? Well, I think that it's an exaggeration, um, and I think that there there is coming to be more consensus um, on on the idea that a lot of the numbers associated with the orphan crisis have been misrepresented. The the various numbers um, that are out there um, for for a long time, when I was reporting this book, people were talking about 143 million, and so that seemed kind of like the, the base number for for a long time. Um, now I've seen estimates that range as high as 210 million, but I think uh, most accurately right now, based on the UNICEF numbers, I don't come back to that. It's 153 million. I'm sure most of your listeners are pretty familiar with this stuff, but I, I guess I'll go over it just in case uh, there are some mm-hmm. who have not. 
Um, those, those numbers actually come, uh, the $153 million comes from a UNICEF tally of orphaned and vulnerable children. Um, and so this includes uh, both, uh, quote, single and double orphans, children who have lost one parent or both parents. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, as I know you know very well, uh, the, the number of double orphans, the children who have lost both parents, is a fraction of that large number. Mm-hmm. And, yet, and even then, with the, with double orphans, many of them are, in fact, living with extended I would assume family. the majority of them are absorbed into their extended family. Yeah, I, I, I would assume the majority. Um, the, the frustrating thing that I came to realize as I was reporting um, and talking with different officials is that it's actually extremely difficult to, to pin down a number for a lot of reasons um, of, of children who are actually without parental care in the world. Um, as one UNICEF official explained to me, you know, there there is no number of children who, who are all alone, who have no parents, no auntie, no grandmother, uh, no grandfather, to, to step in and care for them. And there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, not least of which she said was just the the lack of uniform birth registration across mm-hmm. the world and especially in a lot of developing countries where you know a lot of children are kind of just legally off the grid um they don't legally exist and so it's it's not known you know in- and, and you know one of the biggest tragedies is that these kiddos that often thought of as street children or dump children children sure. who truly are unassociated are for the most part not available for adoption because of the point you just mentioned, that they're, you, you can't adopt a child that you don't know who they are and you have no record because there is the concern that, of course, they belong you know, to someone. Yeah, I thought that that was, that was the most heartbreaking thing that I kind of came to realize. Um, and, and it's a thing that I think, you know, in fairness, is very heartbreaking to the Christian adoption and orphan care movement as well, that in, in many cases... The, the kids who probably most unquestionably need somebody to step in and need a new family are just outside the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's one of, for uh, for those of us who, who care about kids, it's one of the more frustrating, um, I mean, not that I think anybody disagrees with the fact that these protections need to be there, but, the, you know, we need to be active in those countries to do things for those children as much as possible. Um, your uh you you were critical of the orphan care movement for the uh for the propagation of of the 143 or the 154 53 or 100 whatever the you know the, the multiple million dollar and yet um the i think the first place i saw a critique of and that number came from unicef i think unicef probably has since regretted <laughs> the way they've done that number but yeah but uh, nonetheless, it, it, it's a UNICEF number, and the first critique I saw of it was a number of years ago, and I don't remember how many. I'm guessing two to three, maybe more. I don't. I don't remember. Was from Christian Alliance for Orphan. It was a blog, I believe, that uh, that they put out saying that this number is actually the hundred. And, I think it was 143 at the time that that was the sure. number, and they were saying this is not accurate. So I think it is important to note that that. Uh, that there have been many people, both inside and outside the orphan care movement, um, including actually UNICEF hasn't disavowed the number, but they I think are a little uncomfortable. They, I mean, every time they're asked to speak about it, I think they they labor, uh, they they really kind of are, are belabored the point that you know this is a more complicated number, and I think that's well, it's a more complicated true. issue. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
absolutely a very complicated issue. Well, um, I, think that, no, I think the number reflects the complication to a certain extent. I mean, it's actually not a good metaphor, not a bad metaphor for the for the complications that are. We can't even get a handle on the actual number. Um, yeah, um, if I could just speak to that quickly, sure. um, I, I would love to. I mean, because yes, Christian Alliance for Orphans. Uh, I think I think I do recall the blog post. Um, but a, a year later, no, two years later, I'm sorry. So it was last summer in 2012, about this time last year, uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans also released a white paper, so a formal paper, talking about the ways in which they felt that uh, that number had been misrepresented or, uh, you know, unintentionally kind of allowed to be interpreted in a very specific way. And the specific way that was is, is the way that I was critiquing, um, that this was becoming kind of this totemic number that represented children out there for adoption. And while I think, you know, absolutely there were some conversations and, and definitely an understanding, uh, especially among, you know, people who have really invested time in, and leadership and research into this, that, you know, it is a very complicated number. I think on on the ground level, what a lot of people heard is 143 million mm -hmm. is the number of kids available for adoption because you'd hear that put right. into these very various mm -hmm. equations, like, you know, there's 143 millions in the world, but there are, you know, these X billion number of Christians, and if you know one church adopted one child, you know, so there were there were a number of ways that this kind of equation took place. Mm -hmm. That this was used as a rallying cry, and you know, you would see things on individual uh, Christian adoptive parents' blogs, like 143 million minus one when mm -hmm. their child comes home. So it was, you know, while I certainly understand that, you know, there was this recognition among leadership. I feel like that had not quite sifted down to kind of the, the regular people uh, who end up mm -hmm. becoming the most of the adoptive parents and who were really, you know, encouraged and kind of rallied by this number, um, but had not until last summer when the Christian Alliance for Orphans put out the very comprehensive kind of response to those numbers, which was more comprehensive than that 2010 blog post. Because um, there were some, uh, you know, I spoke to somebody in 2009 or 2010, another uh, evangelical, um, less adoption but more orphan care advocate, who, you know, described himself at the time as being a black sheep for, you know, being kind of a stick in the mud about those numbers, as he put it, you know, that he was the one saying, wait, these, these aren't adoptable mm -hmm. children. We can't keep saying that number. So I think a lot of... Yeah. And a complicated and kind of dynamic conversation, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a, that's a very good point. Although it's true that many adoptive parents still want healthy babies and preferably girls, there is a significant shift in international adoption towards adopting older children or children with special needs or sibling groups. Where does this fit into your assessment of the orphan care movement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um was it the the joint council maybe this was last year or the year before they they put out uh, a newsletter with the information that about 27% of their member agencies uh of the adoptions they were doing from overseas were for older or special needs children. Does that ring correct to you? I would think it would be I I I have seen the statistic. I don't have it in front of me, but I would think yeah. it would be significantly higher than that. In fact, quite frankly, we tell people that there is no such thing as adopting a healthy baby from abroad. 
because I'm I mean, Gaucho. I, say, I think that that's, yeah, that's probably an important thing, especially to tell people new to the process. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the, the, the joint council thing, um, and I mean, this is obviously kind of limited to their own agency, so it's not comprehensive of everything, but I, I believe that it was uh, 27% is sticking out in the mind, but, but maybe... Okay. Uh, Maybe it was um, it was around a third, basically, um, of of children were were older, special needs. Um, so I think you know it's it's certainly important to recognize that. Um, but I mean, I, if it is a third, then that that still leaves two thirds of kind of demand is is for children who are you know maybe not healthy babies, but but certainly younger, certainly not in that same category. Um, so it is a really complicated question um, because. That is, I mean, I think as as we all know, that is the the demographic of children who are, tend to be more legitimately in need of adoption, and I think we would all like to to find ways that that would work, um, and and that people could feel confident about entering those those adoptions. Um, I just it was it was a you know a, an upsetting and disappointing uh, thing for me to realize as I was doing my reporting. I spoke to a lot of adoptive parents, including a lot of evangelical adoptive parents, some of whom were mo- motivated specifically uh, by by this sense, A, that they wanted to grow their family or, or build their family, um, and, you know, B, that they felt that, you know, this was a calling, this, this was a calling from God, uh, that they were going to be doing something, and that they would be doing something specifically to to help children who might otherwise be overlooked. And, and some of those families still ended up... Uh, in, you know, adopting children who, you know, were, you know, technically older, whether that meant, you know, they were five or nine, um, but still, uh, you know, there there were problems in some of those adoptions. So that was a kind of a disappointing thing to realize is that, you know, the, the potential for uh, paperwork being misrepresented or seemingly uh, families and birth families or first families not being told the correct information, that that's not limited to kind of the the old stereotype of people swooping in and, you know, trying to get newborns. So that was, I mean, that's a disappointing and challenging thing, I think. uh, Well, yeah, I mean, there's the uh, all adoptions. I mean, I I say and I, I believe there is, Adoption is 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 rooted and founded in a tragedy, and regardless of the type of adoption, it comes from a tragedy. No matter whether it's a tragedy based on death, or which is by far the exception, or a tragedy based on the inability to parent, or a tragedy based on extreme poverty, or the tragedy based on uh, uh, the lack of a father, or and, and societal pressure. For whatever reason, they're based, and anytime you're you're basing something on a tragedy, there's going to be, there are going to be sad and disappointing things, as you say, because it starts it starts in that. Uh, I'm going to come back to some of the the. Uh, yeah, but I, I guess I guess some of the the tragedy. I mean, some of my disappointment is not just that there are sad things in the world, um, but that you know these adoptions, particularly mm-hmm. undertaken with a desire to avoid. You know the sorts of corruption these adoptive families had heard about uh, in infant adoptions. Obviously, that does not apply to everybody who's adopted a baby, of course. But you know, th- these families were trying specifically to avoid some of those pitfalls in right. In they were trying to, to adopt older children the- or, or children mm-hmm. who might have been designated as having very special needs, and to find out uh, that that still, you know, in, in one case, I'm thinking of that the agency at the last minute asked them. 
uh, to misrepresent something to the State Department, or in another case that, that the agency knew that a parent existed who they had sworn up and down, uh, they, they could not identify and the child was abandoned. So, you know, just these two, those two cases among, among you know, a number that I came across of people mm-hmm. specifically adopting older children mm-hmm. to avoid you know, corruption and to, to try to be serving the population mm-hmm. most in need. And then it's just, it, it is, it, it's disappointing, you know, about the process that mm-hmm. that that thing that I think a lot of adoptive parents consider as, as a safeguard does not necessarily automatically mean that, you know, the, their adoption will be free from some of these problems. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little about um, Liberia. You spent a um, uh, uh, make a full chapter, or maybe even more, uh, talking about Liberia, and uh, and I'm really fam- I'm very familiar uh, with Liberian adoptions. I, I will say that that uh, and and just uh, just very briefly, they uh, were known at the time, and this was in the uh, let's see, late 2000s. Um, they were known at the time. For being fast and cheap, that's a, that's being a little bit of a, a gross simplification, um, and it, and like I said, I I uh, from where I sit as the uh, as an adoption educator and, and um, the national adoption education nonprofit that I lead, I certainly saw a lot of I had huge concerns about what was happening there. I will say that the logical focus, or it seemed to me the logical, the focus I should say of my concerns and horror was that most of these adoptions were independent and the families received, many of them, almost no uh, preparation or education beforehand. And I I guess one could even argue, I suppose, that it was the very speed and low cost um, that contributed to this lack of preparation since there was no time-consuming and foot-dragging adoption agency involved. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a fair conclusion. Nevertheless, it never occurred to me to blame the religion of the adopters. In fact, some of the adoptive parents I heard from were not particularly religious, and they were still able to adopt quickly and cheaply. So although I, I uh, you uh, talked well and, and, and did a good summary of what some of the really significant problems associated with that adoption program were, but, I, I, but you focused almost exclusively on the religious component, which and there was a uh, there were some churches that uh, were um, had connections there, uh, but there were non churches that had connections there. There were people who had no uh, religious affiliation whatsoever adopting from there, and it seemed to me that the universal problem, although there were probably many, but one of the universal problems was certainly the total lack of of education. So, um, can you talk to me some about that? Why why focus on the religion and not the lack of education? Right. Well, I mean, in in every story that I looked at throughout this book, my my topic, uh, you know, every every journalist has to to kind of narrow their topic, especially when it is something as as huge and uh, with you know such a complicated history as adoption. So I was looking at the the, the Christian and adoption and orphan care movement, um, and so this to me was was an early example of. Uh, you know, before uh, the Christian adoption movement um, really became, and I think in, in much more mainstream churches, this uh, I was looking at a much smaller community, um, a, a community that I, I think would not find it offensive to be described as fundamentalist. Um, so these were, were people who are uh, fairly distinct um, from, I think, a lot of mainstream evangelicals, though there there are, I, I wrote about, there are kind of a lot of crossovers. Um, but the, the Liberia 
adoption kind of focus that I wrote about was a boom, like a little boomlet that took place in, in a sub-community of very, very conservative, mostly homeschooling uh, conservative Christians who were often adopting uh, in response to a pretty concerted campaign uh, by an, uh, a Christian women's magazine, uh, a free, small Christian women's magazine uh, that claims to have a very large circulation of around uh, 120 or 130,000. And so uh, this, this magazine, Above Rubies, um, started talking about Liberian adoption in either 2005 or 2006 after the, the editor had gone over there. And after that, uh, just published dozens of articles that either touched on these adoptions or, or featured new, new adoptive families that had gone over and brought back uh, a number often, you know, maybe four or even five Liberian children, often a number of them teenagers, all at once. Um, so this became a really concerted campaign within that community. Um, that editor uh, told me that, that she believes that her magazine inspired about a 1,000 adoptions. And if you look at kind of the official statistics um, coming out of Liberia, I assume you're very familiar with them, there weren't a huge amount more than a thousand adoptions that took place during those those few years. Um, maybe it was closer to fifteen hundred, or something like that. Uh, forgive me again if, I, if I'm misremembering. That's that okay. You're close enough. Yeah. Um, yeah but so, you know, in any case, it was uh, a, quite a significant amount of the adoptions. And even if uh, this editor was overestimating her own influence, you could see that influence if you kind of traced back, as I attempted to do, looking at, you know, where people were gathering online to talk. Um, at the time, uh, it was, there was the Yahoo Liberian Adoption Group, or several, actually, that seemed uh, pretty active. And a number mm -hmm. of people in there um, were, were self-identifying with this community, were, were trading information about, you know, the, this magazine. Um, so it seemed uh, pretty legitimate that a number of people were, in fact, inspired by this magazine, uh, which is, you know, again, self-described as, uh, you know, an extremely conservative um, and a not mainstream Christian uh, women's magazine that, that talks a lot about homeschooling and, and the need to bear many, many children. Um, so this became a part of this community, um, and that was a little bit the, the community that I've written about in my first book. So uh, I, I did not really realize this was happening when I was writing my first book, though I saw some signs of it. I I, I interviewed the, the editor of the magazine uh, just as she was about to adopt three Liberian children herself, and her daughter was about to adopt six, uh, and later tried to adopt two more. Um, and you could see kind of in the pages of this magazine that there were other families, and these were already large families who kind of were used to functioning that way and assumed well, no, that... I, I, hear, I hear you, and I don't have any... I mean, I don't doubt at all that... That uh, uh, that a magazine are and for that matter uh, there were churches that were uh, a couple of members uh, adopted from Liberia and there were neighborhoods. Sure, I, I guess yeah. it just seemed I, I don't question that that why, that they why had focus the, on that? Well, or just I mean the, the the real issue was clearly it seems certainly to me is not the religion of the people or who spurred them on because there was a whole host of of spurs. Uh, of people, the reasons that people adopted from there, but the, the real reason was because it was fast and cheap, and they they heard about it from whatever source, and there was no um, there was no agency, there was no oversight uh, making yeah, certain no, it's, that it's, these it's, people were prepared. 
yeah, and I think that that is ultimately, you know, the the absolute kind of core reason. Um, and, I, and I wrote a bit about that, but I also wanted to, to trace back and see how this happened and how people ended up flocking to uh, the same several facilitators uh, who at the time were not. I know that there there were some people doing, you know, legitimate adaptions of Liberia. Um, but there were. There were, but the majority there were also, of people. It seemed like yeah. a lot of people were using these, these facilitators who were were not licensed as agencies in the United States, and but, they were, were sort were of misrepresenting those credentials yeah. in Liberia. Yeah. They were, you know, offering their nonprofit license and letting, yeah. you know, Liberian officials who were functioning without electricity assume that this meant they were they were legally able to process adoptions in the U.S. And a right. lot of those, were, those yeah. facilitation uh, groups were uh, they were flogged again and again and again in in this uh campaign and I spoke with a couple of them and they spoke about the huge influence that that magazine had in in driving people to them uh one of the women who counted herself as as a friend of of that magazine nonetheless said I mean she used your exact words as well you know that these adaptions were characterized as fast and cheap and mm-hmm. this this drove a huge number of people who were, I think, you know, often exceedingly well-intentioned, thinking that they were going to do something to help and thinking that, you know, they could take it on because this is the community that they were coming from where people already regularly did have 12 children. So they were assuming they could add another, you know, four or five Liberian uh, Mm -hmm. war-traumatized teenagers to those families. So I think it was a very... It was a special thing kind of that that took place in this community. It was very much a community with its own set of mores, um, often uh, similar ideas about child raising that Mm -hmm. are probably uniquely unsuited for children who are coming out of a 14-year war zone. Um, So these were communities that also practiced uh, severe physical discipline, and uh, this this led to a lot of failed adoptions. And so, but you know, one of the was interesting... actually kind of a phenomenon. I, I, I'm not just picking on people because they are Christian. This was a phenomenon that took place in largely in this uh, particular community. Even even if there were, of course, adoptive parents who who adapted from Liberia who are not part of this community. Uh, you know, who happen to be Christians and adopted from Liberia. You know, I I absolutely. You know, or Jewish, or that. atheist, or agnostic, or whatever. Exactly, it, exactly. It, the, but there, there was, was there of... was a huge uh, number of adoptions within this community, and it did represent a large proportion of the adoptions from Liberia in that immediate post-war boom, and, and it led to things going pretty drastically wrong in a lot of cases. And I think it's important to look at that and see what well, the facts yeah, were. And I think the the religious ideas are you know, they were very much a part of that because they were what led people in this community uh, to want to adopt and to want to to take such a leap of parenting, you know, multiple children coming from such a hard, hard background and yeah. and to be doing but, it in, in ways that were off the grid because that's kind of, uh, in a lot of cases, how their community is living. But what's interesting to me is that I my take home is and of course, I'm coming from an adoption, adoption educator's point of view. My take home is what we must do is educate and prepare families pre-adoption and then continue to educate and support them post-adoption. But mm-hmm. some of the very agencies that you were most critical of are the agencies, are not are the agencies, are agencies that actually go above and beyond 
um, from an adoption education standpoint, that for, if you're adopting from a Haitian country, are we talking about Liberia still? We're talking in general. No, I'm kind of moving okay. us on just in general into the to the notion of of I mean, adoption education does not happen in a vacuum. It can. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not an agency, and we provide a huge amounts of adoption education, including courses. But that's not to say that I mean, most people uh, uh, become educated on adoption uh, because it is a requirement of their agency. Some agencies require just the bare minimum, which quite frankly with the domestic adoptions, although we're not spending time right now on that, uh, can be zero number of education hours. But uh, with international, if it's a hate country, um, it you require 10 hours. But there are agencies that require significantly above that. And yet that, of, of course, uh, increases the time and and the cost. Let me get a quick uh, thing in here. You're listening to Creating a Family. Uh, Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us on Twitter. You can connect with me at Dawn Davenport One or at Creating a Family. On Facebook, there are three ways to to connect with us. One, Dawn Davenport One. If it's me, you want to connect with, and or we'd love to have you with our Creating a Family communities. One is our Facebook page, uh, Creating a Family, and the other one is the Creating a Family Facebook support group. Uh, and you can find either of the page or the group just by typing creating a family in the uh, Facebook search box, um, and both the page and the group will pop up. I wanted to uh, – there's so much I do want to talk about. if I just respond to, to what you just said? Sure. No, go ahead. Um, well, I, I just wanted to point out that uh, you're, you're, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, outside of the Liberia chapter, you're saying that some of the other – uh, adoption agencies that I, I wrote about and in some cases critiqued uh, on other grounds um, that they do excellent post-adoption care and that is what's needed. And and let me say, of course, I, I absolutely agree. I think what went wrong in, in Liberia, or, you know, one of the several things that went wrong was, uh, you know, a lack of, uh, a total lack of post-placement support and uh, pre-adoption education for for a lot of these families you know there i think there's a lot of blame to go around but i think that that was that was a huge part of the problem um but just uh just to clarify the the way i wrote my book um and maybe it's more clear to me as the author because i spent these years working on it is that each chapter was meant to deal with rather a specific issue so while i wrote about uh, these issues of kind of the lack of preparation and the the lack of post placement support and how that led to tragedy in the the case of a lot of Liberian adoptions, I that was not uh, my topic in in other chapters where I was writing about uh, you know mm-hmm. kind of what what Fair enough. No, I understand like in, that. in Ethiopia mm-hmm. or you know yeah. what can go wrong with uh, crisis pregnancy centers and domestic yeah. adoptions. So it's if I you know if I write critically about. Bethany Christian Services in terms of, you know, some of their work in domestic adoptions and some of the specific stories I reported that does not necessarily translate to to what happened in Liberia. And, you know, just as a representative of some of the more uh, responsible agencies that were, were acting in Liberia, I, I did have a quote from, from an agency in there describing exactly what you would need you know, and what mm-hmm. you, what you need to tell parents in order to not have these things happen to, to right, remind exactly. them, you know, it's going to take X number of years for your child to recover from being hungry and from from witnessing terrible, terrible violence. So, mm-hmm. it's just to make clear that I I did not write about or or kind of in in impute anything about you know some of these more responsible agencies in in that mm-hmm. chapter. 
you know, one of the things that struck me um, throughout um, throughout the book, and I do appreciate your saying that you used each chapter to focus on a specific issue, and that's that's certainly fair. But one of the things that kind of it seemed to me that struck me throughout was that it was the lack of use of of any hard research. Throughout the book, it seemed to me that you relied on anecdotal reports rather than research. For example, you relied on anecdotal reports of individual transracial adopted persons rather than the research, which, let me be clear, doesn't necessarily, well, let me say, the research doesn't, necess- doesn't. there's a host of research out there, much of it showing you know, different things, but for the most part, it doesn't necessarily support the, the arguments being made by individuals. But let me be clear that that's not to say that there's not a place for anecdotal reports, particularly those that contradict the research. And and, and for that matter, it's also fair to criticize some of the adoption research. I mean, how do we really measure things like mental health and racial identity? So all of that would be a fair assessment. But a book that that's on international or on adoption in general, um, and and the it seems to me that. I kept looking for, okay, well, let's talk about how ultimately how we judge something is how the individuals that, that, that were adopted, how do they fare, how do they do, how do they feel. And, and as far as I can tell, there was none of that in the book. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I guess by, by virtue of the fact that I wrote a lot about international adoption, I was writing uh, a lot about transracial adoption, but as a specific topic, I don't think that I spent a huge number of pages. There's on, tons of research out there. At long, some I mean, very good, some meta-analysis, uh, some long-term, that some I spent bad. A lot of time writing about. Um, I, I wrote a little bit about some of the 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 Christian adoption theology or orphan theology that tackles uh, transracial adoption because that was a large part of their argument. Um, and then, you know, I, I included some of the experiences of adoptees, but that was just not one of the focuses of my, my research. There are, unfortunately, a lot of aspects of adoption that, you know, uh, the scope of my book just uh, could not include. Um, and I just well, I don't fair. feel and that I, I focused a huge amount on that, that I, and I feel like, you know, dropping in statistics to say, you know, actually, you know, many of these adoptees, end up, you know, performing very well. Uh, I, I that just it, it doesn't seem like I, I had focused on that argument enough to make that necessary. That's my perspective, of course. It was fair. Um, you describe well some of the ethical dilemmas of international adoption. Um, I, I am at a loss as to necessarily why you blame it on the, evan- uh, the these ethical issues on the evangelical orphan movement, but it's true that they are an important part of the increased demand and they carry influence that can help address some of the ethical concerns. But but I'm but I, I again I don't particularly see them as the cause. But I don't I don't us- think that they're the cause. I don't think that uh it, I don't think evangelicals or or the Christian adoption movement created uh these problems. I think that the Christian adoption movement as as it is now is you know is fairly young and I I say that with respect to, you know, their arguments that this is a very old tradition that they are reclaiming. But I just mean in terms of its present face, it's it's a movement True. that is less mm-hmm. than a decade old. And Absolutely. of course we have seen uh, problems in, in international adoption and, and problems that look very much the same as they do now uh, for, for years before that. Um, so I don't think that the genesis is there. 
but I think that you know there is there's something to be said about what what the adoption community looks like today um compared to how it also looked ten years ago, and I think overwhelmingly you know the the influence of the christian adoption movement is is very present, so I think that you know there are huge numbers of people kind of flowing into this movement and being being encouraged to adopt and getting excited about adopting and entering that process at, at a very tricky time in the the overall history of international adoption when so many countries it seems almost like you know dominoes sometimes are just closing programs and one when i spoke with uh one adoption expert um and it was it was Chuck Johnson from the National Council uh, for Adoption, and he he uh, reflected uh, to me, um, you know, publicly, and then I, I interviewed him about it. That uh, and he he affirmed the same thing that he thought sometimes uh, Christian adoption advocates, uh, with the very best of intentions, can be kind of the worst at at rushing in with a sort of ends justify the means sensibility. To things, um, especially kind of feeling, you know, not just all of the other very powerful, like very emotionally potent reasons for for wanting to adopt, um, you know, on kind of a secular sense or you know a universal sense, but also combining with that, with uh, mm-hmm. you know the sense that now that this is a religious calling, that he felt that this was kind of adding up to, you know, some not all, but some uh, Christian adoption agency service professionals having more of that ends justify the means by whatever means necessary approach to things um and that this could sometimes lead i mean his his words not mine but to a situation where someone would say i'm following god's law not man's um right so which is it, something we would have to it, all and and let me be upfront that i have been critical of the orphan care movement uh i felt that there was um in the, I don't feel this so much now, but I did. One of my concerns was that they were cheerleaders for adoption, but yet mm-hmm. not cheerleaders for slow it down, get educated. Adopting yep. a child from a hard place is not the same as adopting an infant. You need special property, blah, blah, blah. I, I feel like they have uh, listened. It wasn't just my criticism. It was others. But I feel like that I certainly hear that from the movement now, and 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 I have had have been critical, not haven't necessarily been uh, publicly critical, but I, I think that sure, there has sure. been by some people uh, in the movement a hesitancy to use any educational resources by agencies that are not exclusively religious in their uh, in their background, but I I don't see that across the board either, you know. So I I do see, um, I suppose what I'd like to I mean, up front there are huge issues in international adoption. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but you mm-hmm. did a good job in the book. Let me just briefly just list a few because since we're talking about international adoption, I do want it to make certainly we at least touch on the fact that there these issues exist. The creation of orphanages tends to draw children to them, and that's one of the issues in orphan care in general. Um, there's the whole thing that I struggle with a lot, which is a cultural acceptance of leaving children for years at a time, sometimes for a lifetime, for a childhood in institutions, and that's culturally accepted in some places. 
the fact that, quite frankly, first world money uh, just inherently has a tendency to corrupt in third world circumstances, different interpretations of what adoption means and, and how, how that plays out from a country that has a, a longstanding uh, acceptance of children being fostered or, or, or sent out for education but with the expectation of coming back. Uh, I've mentioned probably ad nauseum the whole uh, lack of adoption education. You know, the, the underestimation of the difficulties of raising a kid who has uh, a, a, just about any child adopted abroad is going to have had is, had come from a hard place, almost all of them, not all of them, but most. Anyway, so and, and just also the, the, the very inherent notion that adoption preempts other family preservation solutions. So all of those you did a good job of touching on, and they are uh, they are something that I think all of us who who care about child welfare in general, and I certainly speaking for myself, I think about these things a lot, and and really, but but to me, and, and really struggle with them. But the the real issue to me, or the real hard issue, uh, is, and I didn't see this addressed in the book, is that how do we provide for kids without parents, both here in the U.S. and abroad? And, and so, for instance, what happens to the number of abandoned and relinquished children once adoption shut down? It, it, it's as if the solution that I took from reading this book was international adoptions are the problem, as opposed to there is in huge problems. How do we address those, and, and where is international adoption's place in addressing those? And if we take international adoption out completely, which is happening many places, what happens to the kids then? Right, right. I mean, I don't know if I have a universal prescription. Like, obviously, the the stuff that's happening in in Russia is is far removed from the the countries where I was lucky enough to do kind of firsthand reporting and where I feel I understand the situation a little more. So, I you know, in in each country, it it seems to me it's can be an extremely different situation and. I know, you know, I know in some countries in uh I've been speaking a lot with people who are are doing family preservation work in Uganda and I, a lot of the children who are in orphanages just simply do not need to be there. Um and in some cases uh you know that I've heard of and that I've I've spoken to people about their their parents don't even necessarily want them to be there. Uh they they were in there for, you know, reasons that you know, adoption or the orphanage situation, which, you know, in many cases is tied to kind of receiving foreign aid, so this becomes its own sort of self-perpetuating thing, that uh, those uh, those numbers just get incredibly inflated. So I think when international adoption is not as readily the solution and it is not something that's bringing that kind of distorting Western money into the country, then I think there will be, you know, a number a much smaller number of children probably who are legitimately outside of parental care. Um, in, in Cambodia, isn't it true that after uh, adoption uh, was slowed and shut there, um, a lot of the children who were in orphanages, a lot of the orphanages simply closed because there was no longer that kind of that conduit to Western money. That's it's an interesting question, and the numbers are really hard to come by, to be perfectly honest, and you're, it's fair to say that each country probably is somewhat different. In Cambodia, but I, mean, I know that's not what's happening in Russia. I mean, so I'm not, no, I'm not and, trying to make well, an across-the-board statement. It's it's hard to get numbers. Let's take Guatemala, where there were certainly significant abuses going on. The, the country was right. shut down, and the expectation was, well, there would simply be no more children coming in because they were coming in because uh, they were being drawn by adoption. 
as I hear, and these are not, having been critical of, of anecdotal reports, now I'm going to be guilty of it. I haven't been able to find good numbers. They simply don't exist. But I don't. know yeah. of a number of orphanage directors down there, and uh, they're bursting at the seams, uh, literally bursting at the seams. So I uh, I don't think that – probably some certainly did um, – I think a lot of times what happens is the orphanages close down and because they're the ones that are being primarily supported by agencies and then the public and the other non-agency exclusive orphanages grow. I think that's more or less we're running out of some time. Let me let me move the discussion to uh, uh Korea because it's also kind of a, a point. That's, I was I was just going to ask if we could speak about that actually. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh you quoted an, a, uh, an article I wrote on, uh, and every, you can, it, people can Google it. I'll try to include it in the show notes on the blog tomorrow. Very uh, uh, South Korea adoptions, canary in the coal mine, you'll, it'll pop up. Uh, yeah. And as I said, you, you quoted me, but I felt like the, art, the, the, um, the, the article, the blog, I felt like you missed the point. Adoption is currently the solution for a minuscule percentage of the children without families in Korea. The government statistics for the last year I had when I wrote it was 2010, but they're not going to be much different now, are about 8,500 abandoned and relinquished children each year. Of those, about 1,500 were adopted domestically. About 1,000 were adopted abroad. And that leaves over 6,000 babies and children. Um, And we know that there's about 20,000 kids in uh, orphanages who spend their entire life in orphanages, the vast majority relinquished by unwed mothers, but there is zero possibility that they could be adopted because you can only be adopted if you are uh, – they could have been adopted domestically but not internationally. And then another 1,000 that are in foster care. And again, unless you are particularly – a child is particularly uh, relinquished to one of the agencies that is uh, involved – there's only four of them that are involved in international adoption. So basically 1,000 out of, you know, what, 9,000. Uh, and it was – and that point wasn't touched on at all. So what happens the, – the hard issue is the 6,000 that – I mean, why even talk about international adoption in a sense? Because it's just a, it's a drop in the bucket. Well, I, I I think I made I, I mean I don't I don't have it in front of me. I'm pretty sure that I made I might I didn't cite all of those numbers, but the, I think that I referred to the fact that the part of this discussion was about children who were not being adopted, and who you know were were instead being stuck in these institutions. Um, so I, I I will go back and check afterwards to make sure. Well, that the I'm implication the truth, is I'm that, pretty that sure the I, implication without, of that chapter, as I understood it, was that because. Korea is a little different, not a little, quite different from most other international countries mm-hmm. in that it's uh, the stigma of against unwed motherhood, which is the primary reason that these children are entering. Right. And, and and my article uh, blog was trying to t- – it was, was really focused on how darn hard it is in reality because it's not that international adoption is why these women are not – parenting they're not parenting because of the social stigma so what happens to the now ultimately we want to change the social stigma yes how do you go about doing that and then i analyzed the ways that have been tried and how ineffective they have been and so i was trying to get at kind of the okay so now how do we deal with the hard issue in the real world 
Um, right, and, right. and I think that the reason, quite frankly, that I, I don't know, but I suspect that one of the reasons that Korea was brought up was to, to introduce the concept of adult adoptees and and how they have uh, that we need to now listen to adult international adoptees as well as adult adoptees across the board uh and and you you know not to get all pedantic here but you talked about the stream of criticism that was in the comments uh, uh, on my blog which I must say I was immensely thankful it was we, we but uh, to have such diversity of comments. I I thought it was a very fascinating conversation it, and I it was. I kind of wrote about it at you know, more length than I would normally wrote, write about a, uh, you know, blog post yes, comments because I thought, right. you know, there was something, there was something very interesting happening, and I, I, I really appreciated your your initial post that, that spurred that conversation as well. Well, um, we tried it. Let me just wait. Let me just put, sure. throw out one other thing, and then I am going to turn it over to you. I'm not trying to be a monologue no, here, but no, 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 no. The, the, um, you're right. We do try to be a place that all members of the triad, uh, be they uh, uh, adopted persons, in fact, we, we actively want adopted persons speaking, adopted parents and, and birth parents. So that's it wasn't surprising to me that we had that discussion, but nonetheless, I certainly appreciated. But again, we had 64 comments, of which 13 were from adult adoptees. Uh, but and again, I realize this seems hypercritical, but I think it makes the, the bigger point. You talked about a stream and a flood of criticism from adult adoptees, but of the adoptees that spoke, four were critical of the adoption system, four were positive about the adoptive system to the extent of they felt very thankful or whatever, and five, uh, and five had just kind of mixed positive and critical and tried to present kind of a balanced view, but the only ones that you mentioned were the ones that were critical, and that felt like that, again, Miss, it felt like you were had a point you wanted to make, and you were looking for evidence to support the point, rather than take the uh, try to take a more unbalanced view. Well, I mean, that's what uh, it felt like from from my standpoint. I, w- I was also directed to that blog post by by a lot of uh, chatter on on Facebook and, and yeah, other social media. So um, that's that's part of kind of what the flood is. I did not do the breakdown of numbers, um, but the. The voices of critical people seemed to shift the conversation. If I recall uh, reading it, uh, it would spend a little bit of a time. But uh, I, it did I felt in a way. there was, I mean, there was yeah. a lot of there was a lot of online discussion both on your website and on on other social media about the conversation that was happening there. So that was that was part of what I was getting at. Um, but I, I I I see your points, and I think they are valid points, and I I think that's what makes this such a complicated issue, but I think I also, another complicated question in that mix is how do we get to the point uh, where we are we are past just having having regret for the fact that the international adoption system is kind of being sustained uh, by a deep cultural inequality uh, that, that Women, especially unwed mothers in in South Korea, are contending with that is not really that dissimilar from what was happening here in the U.S. in, in the 60s and 70s. And so very my point. factor there was was looking at uh, what, frankly, you know, I I I don't really believe particularly that there is a possibility of unbiased journalism. I think that what's happening in South Korea with the unwed mothers. Um, who are keeping their children in the face of tremendous social stigma is a bit of a liberation movement. Um, and I wanted to write about that, and I wanted to write about this is one way, uh, you know, that eventually, you know, some of these mothers want to keep their children. If 
I don't, the statistics that I saw there, I don't know if they're going to look the same. Um, you know, it, it, the statistics that I saw were that, you know, when given some support and a chance to keep their children, un, a larger number of unwed mothers will. I don't know how much that will stay the same when, when, if and when it, it's expanded uh, largely, more largely across the country so that more women are, you know, actually feasibly in a position to make that choice. But I did, I guess I did find frustrating the sense that a lot of the conversation comes back to, uh, you know, on, on the side of kind of hoping to uh, maintain the same numbers of international adoption. The conversation seems to come back to and get stuck for years on, well, isn't it a shame uh, that these are the social mores in South Korea, but that can't be changed so we need to keep this in place. And at a certain point, because those were sort of the, the same arguments that were being made in the 80s, it starts to feel like, all right, it, it, it's time. Something, something's got to well, change. Yeah. You know? I and hear I, you. I, I hear your point as well that, no, it's not acceptable that you know children be made the, the collateral damage of that any more than other people and other children are being made the collateral damage of other abuses, international adoption. We need to find a way that's better. Um, and I think that this is a hugely important part of the conversation to recognize mm, I agree. that these women can't just be left kind of uh, victims to you know, an institutionalized patriarchal culture that mm -hmm. punishes them for, for having the same sex that everyone else is having. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. And, and, and you know, to, to the extent that... Uh, it's it's an interesting issue because it really isn't you know we as as americans it's not and i'm using air quotes here our problem in a sense of us going in and solving it and 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 trust me the south koreans don't want us to solve it as, no, and understandably on the other hand i do think that it, you're right um uh that we as as a nation and certainly we as an adoption community can go a long way towards at least giving uh attention to the fact that um that this is that that the that the mores will uh, need to change and i mean they uh, they i think quite frankly that slightly off topic but i think they probably will the birth rate is is certainly dipping there and quite frankly infertility is increasing so i think domestic adoption so i mean i think that Ultimately, we, we move in that direction. Uh, just slowly, since you've introduced the concept of domestic, I, I feel like we must at least uh, touch on that. I've, I didn't mean to spend quite so much time talking international. Um, again, uh, you are critical of, of the domestic adoption uh, and the orphan cares movement influence on that. And you... Uh, again, rely on anecdotal reports of forced domestic adoption or forced or, or, or uh, undue pressure being given um, as uh, on uh, expected women to to place. And I realize that it really isn't the intent of your book to perhaps show the the other side. But I, going back to the notion that that well, we do an annual uh, show, a birth mother panel, and there is a huge diversity. Uh, in the birth mother world, there's simple, I've never met a, a a birth mom who looks back and say, "Gosh, I'm glad I placed." I mean, that it's a it's a huge emptiness, and and depending on the woman, sometimes it is life altering. Uh, but certainly, it is life well, it's probably life altering for everyone. But for some, they 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 simply never get over it. Sure. But I think that there are certainly uh, many women 
who, although never happy, uh, certainly maybe view it as the best option then. Some view it as, I'm just going back to the women we've interviewed on our panel, um, I think everyone wishes that it had not happened. I can't imagine I, I'm a single woman who would not wish that it had not happened. Um, but but some certainly don't believe they were coerced. Some believe that they made that that if they knew then knew then what they know now, they wouldn't have done. I do hear that a lot. It's more of a temporary problem. If they could get past it, that I do hear that a lot. But again. Um, you, fo- you, you, in particular, focused on one woman who felt and, and uh, overwhelmingly coerced, um, uh, but but uh, but no attempt was made to show that there are women who don't feel coerced, although immensely sad and and perhaps life altered. Well, uh, there, I I don't fully agree with that. There there are uh, appearances by other women who were speaking, um, uh, you know, with sadness, uh, but not with accusation about their their past adoption. So there there is at least one woman I'm thinking of right now um who is at a a birth mother brunch that I went to. Um and and she, you know, this there were several women who were talking about their adoptions and and one I focused on uh who was sad but uh not not talking about coercion. So I I think that that, you know, that experience is represented but again, in my mm-hmm. book, I I felt that I wanted to focus on people whose stories I don't think get told very often, and I don't think I think you know. While yes, uh, I think you know international adoption scandals do make national news overwhelmingly. Uh, a lot of coverage of adoption is fairly one-dimensional. Um, it's you know a very happy family um, that, that says some some lovely things to to the newspaper about how much they appreciate their birth mother or or how wonderful it is i mean like if you look at almost any local coverage which makes up the you know the, the kind of the the hugest amount of adoption coverage that there is is local papers covering local adoptions it is this very familiar story about how adoption is a very beautiful thing and i wanted to focus on uh, the other side of those stories that that don't always get told and in this case it was you know, a woman who has been, uh, you know, thanked profusely and acknowledged publicly as having done this uh, amazing thing, but her her understanding, her experience of that is, mm-hmm. is night and day different. from, yeah. you know, how this has been publicly described. And, and right. I I wanted to, to give some of these women uh, okay, yeah. a voice and, and a chance to, to share their stories as well. I, I do hear what you're saying. But, you know, from where I sit as an adoption educator, I truly see that I, I feel like I see it all. I spend 365 days a year since 2007 thinking of ways to better educate and support people considering adoption so that they're better, better able to decide if they should adopt or if they should adopt that child. And we also have extensive support and resources and education for parents once they adopt so for being better parents to that particular child with those particular needs. Right. So I, I truly think I see it all, the sad stories, the adoptive parents that are struggling, some to the point of breaking. But, you know, I also see the amazing and the heartbreakingly happy success stories. And I don't remember a single happy adoption story in your book, other than maybe perhaps got a very passing mention, if at all. It just seems terribly one-sided and bleak, and it simply doesn't reflect the reality of adoption that I see, or quite frankly, as somebody who reads a lot of adoption research, it doesn't reflect the reality of adoption as, as the researchers are seeing it either. Not that those sad stories don't exist, not that I don't see them, and not that I'm not the one trying to help people and educate and support them when they are happening. 
It just well, I mean, as I, as I wrote in my, my introduction, you know, the, the purpose of my book is to, to talk about the stories that I feel do not get covered uh, very much and that there is this other side that is important and needs to be understood if, if people, I mean, I was writing specifically about uh, the, the new uh, adoption and orphan care movement uh, among Christians, but if that, if, if they want to proceed with this, that there is a lot more information that needs to be taken into account. I would argue that uh, probably most books you read are not going to be uh, a comprehensive overview of of every reality and adoption, but I, I set out with a specific purpose to, to cover some of the issues that I saw. So that's, yeah, that's what I did. Well, I hear you, and, and that's fair. You're right. I mean, you do, I mean, your book was with an intent. It just seems that if you're going to, these are the cautions to be aware of, you have to show at least in passing. But let me quickly get to one. And I think uh, they are there in passing, as, as you acknowledged a couple minutes ago. I mean, there are happy families. A lot of times they are happy in, in spite of, you know, in, encountering some significant problems or, you know, in some cases, they are, you know, large Christian, uh, evangelical Christian families who have kind of gone to the other end of the earth to to save a child from uh, a badly disrupted adoption. And, you know, that is now a happy family, and that is turning into a happy story. Um, but it comes at, you know, as a result of a lot of things going wrong that should not have. Uh, and b- before we leave, let me. Uh, I think it's important to mention because I, I felt like this was lacking in the book, and that is there is a significant part of the orphan care movement um, that is encouraging families, uh, Christians, uh, members of the movement or, or, or churches, to encourage foster care adoption. I mean, where do you stand on that? I, it seems U.S. Like foster that... care, I should say. Yes, sure. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me that that is something that is, is more in, encouraging, and I think they're also looking at some foster care alternative programs as well, um, which I, you know, there are kind of these, these safe family programs that I heard about and just did not have the, the space to go into in, in this book, but that seem like they might be uh, – Better a better use of resources and kind of the the tremendous energy and capacity to be mobilized of this this movement. I think you know as you touched on before the the Christian adoption movement um, is is really changing. Um, it is I think it's I was reporting on a, a dynamic movement that was still in its young years and now is uh, I think the Christian Alliance for Orphans. I, I I, sorry, I don't know exactly what summit they just had, but they're they're getting around ten years um, themselves. And I, I think a lot of changes have come with that. I think a lot of changes have come in the past year. And I think that, as I wrote in the book, I think that the the leadership of that organization in particular has sought out the opinions of critics. They, you know, they sought out my opinion um, and you know asked me to to share with them. Um, so I think that they are. Uh, responding to critique and to, to some of the problems that they see themselves. I think that there is uh, further to go. Uh, I think that on on the ground, um, people in churches hearing about this movement often are not talking about these complicated issues, but are still too often hearing the message of, as you put it, you know, cheerleading for adoption. Um, and so I think that you know the sort of sophisticated conversation that's happening among leadership 
and in you know in conversations like this is not necessarily what's being reflected in in congregations where people are still kind of being encouraged that you know anywhere where you jump jump in to to the adoption field is is going to be a beneficial thing and you know this is what you should be you know directing your energy to as a christian and i think that that you know we've got a little ways to go before the realities the more complicated realities are being accurately reflected on the ground but i i agree and appreciate um that the movement leadership at least seems to be recognizing some of these problems you are listening to Creating a Family. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at our website, creatingafamily.org, on the top left-hand side, or if you prefer, you can just send me an email and ask us to add you. Um, you could not send it to me, but you could just send it to info at creatingafamily.org. And I'd like to take a moment to thank one more gold sponsor. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show, as well as all the resources we've mentioned today on creating a family. And that is Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, as well as a domestic infant program and their Snowflake Embryo Donation Embryo Adoption Program. Thank you, Catherine Joyce, so much for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If, for the audience, you want to participate, and you as well, Catherine, in a discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org. If you would like to buy the Child Catchers, and I imagine after this discussion you will want to buy it, uh, you can go, of course, to your favorite local bookstore and get it there or ask them to buy it, to order it for you. Or, of course, you can go through Amazon or any of the other online. You can also get more information on Catherine and both of her books, as well as her other articles that she publishes uh, routinely. And her website is catherinejoyce.com. And as she says, that's Catherine with a K and a Y. So catherinejoyce.com. Thanks for listening to us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.